The English Civil Wars, 1639 to 1660. The Trials of Edmund Ludlow, Part 5. Now, once in France, Ludlow made his plans to head for Geneva, a city with a long history of tolerance and where many British religious exiles had led untroubled lives for well over a century. Ludlow hoped to find himself among like-minded compatriots, for he knew several of the other regicides had talked of fleeing to Switzerland. He set off to the southeast, passing through Rouen, before arriving three days later in Paris, where he stayed with a Protestant Huguenot family. This was a place of repugnant fascination to Ludlow, both for its rampant Catholicism and because it was the fulcrum of Louis XIV's absolute hold over France. The Englishman leveled his contempt at the monarch and his religion with equal ferocity. I saw the king's stable of horses, the old cavalryman wrote, which, though not extraordinarily furnished, gave me more pleasure than I should have received by seeing their master, who thinks fit to treat them better than his miserable people. But I loathe to see such members of idle drones, who in ridiculous habits, wherein they place a great part of their religion, are to be seen in every part eating bread of the credulous multitude, and leaving them to be distinguished from the inhabitants of other countries by thin cheeks, canvas clothing, and wooden shoes. From Paris, Ludlow aimed for Lyon, joining a group of international travelers, which included a friendly German aristocrat. On arrival, he was troubled to see how closely newcomers to the city were scrutinized. All were obliged to disclose their details to the government officials. Ludlow, however, was spared such questioning. His luck was continuing to hold. Relieved, he settled into the inn with his traveling companions. It was not a happy experience. He recorded with disgust how they were forced to share the premises with friars of various orders, one of whom Ludlow took to task for making lewd suggestions to a Puritan youth in their party. Many of his prejudices seem to have been confirmed during his journey through profane France, towards the promised land of the Republican Protestant Geneva. The last stop before reaching Switzerland was Fort Lecluse, a border garrison between the Vouchet Hills and the Jura Mountains, which controlled the Rhone River. Ludlow had been advised that the examination he had avoided in Lyon would be inevitable here, but the warnings came from those unacquainted with the slack discipline at Fort Lecluse, some well-placed bribes, which paid for soldiers' drinks, saw this last obstacle evaporate. The next day, he crossed the Rhone River and soon afterwards entered Geneva. Here, there were a few reminders of home. During his journey, Ludlow had heard that his fellow regicide, William Crawley, was heading for Geneva. But he discovered that neither he nor any of the other fugitives were there. Geneva itself was a disappointment. Neither in doctrine nor discipline, principle or practice, he wrote, they have made such progress since the time of the First Reformation as might have been hoped for, but have rather gone backwards and brought forth sour grapes. Eleven days after arriving in the Swiss capital, Ludlow was shocked to read of the executions of Harris, Carew, Cook, and Peters. Following week's Gazette gave detailed accounts of the ends of Scott, Strope, Clements, Jones, Axtell, and Hacker. If he had not run away when he did, Ludlow knew he would have been among the same batch of hanged, drawn, and quartered parliamentarians. Further news reached Ludlow from England, including concocted accounts of his fate. 
The Royalist publication, Mercurius Politicus, declared in early September, we have omitted the proclamation for the 300 pounds to any that should apprehend Colonel Edmund Ludlow. In regard, we hear from very good hands that he is already in custody. The following week, the paper was less bullish. Ludlow was nearly taken, it reported. They took his hat and coats and cloaks, and two or three were with him. Elsewhere, there were rumors that the lieutenant general had been captured while trying to flee to country in disguise. Although the bulletins were wildly inaccurate, they reconfirmed the energy that Charles II's men were putting into apprehending Ludlow. It seemed impossible to his enemies that a man of such high profile could really have gotten away. The royalists convinced themselves that such an easily identifiable figure must still be in England, and they redoubled their efforts to hunt him down. December brought false reports alleging his capture in England. On Saturday night at midnight was Major General Ludlow taken at one, of, at one Michael Oldsworth's house, secretary to the late Earl of Pembroke. Ludlow married this Oldsworth's sister. He got out of the house but was taken endeavoring to make his escape. That same month he learned that the House of Commons had voted to have the bodies of Cromwell, Ireton, and Bradshaw dug up from their burial places and hung from gallows. This desecration was followed the precedent established after the gunpowder plot of 1605, where the bodies of Catsby and Percy, two of the conspirators who had died before facing trial and execution, were exhumed and decapitated, their heads placed on spikes outside the House of Lords. As part of this posthumous retribution against Cromwell, Ireton, and Bradford, a mason named John Lewis was given 15 shillings to break open the leading regicides' lavish tombs so their corpses could be retrieved. He found Cromwell's remains wrapped in a green wax cloth. The Lord Protector's torso was clad in a copper gilt breastplate emblazoned with the arms of the Commonwealth with the reverse recorded the span of his life and his full title in Latin. Two days later, on January the 28th, Cromwell's and Ireton's bodies were taken in carts to Westminster to the Red Lion Inn in Holborn, where they spent the night side by side. They were joined by Bradshaw's corpse the following day. The 13th of January, 1661, was the 12th anniversary of the execution of Charles I. Parliament decreed this day should become, as John Evelyn recalled, the first solemn fast and day of humiliation to deplore the sins which so long have provoked God against this afflicted church and people, ordered by Parliament to be annually celebrated to expiate the guilt of execrable murder of the late king. A symbolic centerpiece was needed as a focus for the first festival of atonement. That morning, the three regicides' coffins were dragged on sledges to the gallows at Tyburn, there the caskets were broken open, the bodies pulled from them, the remains were hanged from nine in the morning until six in the evening, dangling on a gibbet in front of a crowd of thousands. Three men of exceptional distinction and power in their lifetimes, under the restored monarchy, they were just a trio of traitors swiveling on various states of decay. That evening their remains were beheaded, the bodies slung into deep common pits, the three heads were stuck on spikes in Westminster and their unseen eyes directed towards the spot where the king's scaffold had stood. Now the hunt restarted for the remaining men who had shared in the killing of the king but who had yet to face justice. 
Charles II instructed his agents to track them down, even if they had managed to flee overseas. So, they're still going to keep looking for Ludlow. The sources for this, Killers of the King, The Men Who Dared Execute Charles I by Spencer, History of England by Thornton, Lockyer, and Smith, and the English Civil War, 1640-1660 by Warden. So I hope you enjoyed that, and as always, don't forget to come by the website, summahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com, and ask a question, leave a comment, check out our merchandise, and if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.